Beyond Barbarossa, the Eastern Front, Episode 7, The Complex Web of War. Come with me to the summer of 1941, a whole world torn by war. Literally around the world, from Europe to the Atlantic, from the Pacific to the Mediterranean. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, author of the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army during World War II, and the sponsor of this episode. Before I go much further, I just want to tell you about some of the enhancements I've made to the podcast. You may have noticed a somewhat different theme song. This is an extended version of the original, composed, performed, and recorded by Nicholas Burry. The show also now has its own web domain, beyondbarbarossa.ca. For now, it forwards to the same Podbean site as before, so just in case that looks confusing. And now I'm going to keep it that way, at least until I can get some straight answers on some straightforward technical questions. But you can send me an email right now to the new domain, contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca. That works. So I'm happy to be here with you. I have everything I need, my coffee, my water, my glasses, and the puppy, Daisy, is sleeping in another room. So, back to the show. Last episode described the Battle of Smolensk. It was another enormous encirclement. But was it really the point at which Germany began to lose the war in the East? It didn't look that way at the time, nor would it for some time to come. But there are many historians who think the signs were there. This is the point where the theme of this whole podcast becomes obvious. The size, scale, scope, and complexity of what we in the West sum up as the Russian front. And we can really start to see what I've always thought of as the most fascinated aspect of this whole war. Not just how widespread it was and how many different nations and people and parts of the world were involved, but also how connected they all were. How events and operations in Russia could affect the Mediterranean, for example. Let's not forget that the Germans had to suspend a number of operations, particularly air, 
in the Mediterranean because the Luftwaffe was moving to Russia. Another aspect I'd like to stress here, another myth about the Eastern Front is the complexity. By the beginning of the autumn of 1941, the Eastern Front really comprised four areas of operation, and each of these could be subdivided. In the south, in Ukraine around Kharkiv, as well as in the Crimea, and along the coast of the Sea of Azov in the Donbass. In the center, German forces were pushing toward Moscow from three different axes. Army Group North was besieging Leningrad, and there were operations west and east of the city to cut off any communications with the rest of Russia. And then there's the far north, where the operations of so-called Army of Norway, a German force, together with Finnish units, launched a series of operations collectively called Operation Silver Fox to try to capture Murmansk on the Barents Sea. I know I haven't talked about that yet on this podcast, but I will get to it. But even if you discount the operations in the far north, that leaves three main operating regions, each of which is so big it could be almost considered an operations theater in its own right. That's complex, especially when you consider that units would move from one region to another and back again, leading to major events that had long-term implications and ripple effects. Well, it's, it's very complex. It's a moving picture playing on a screen 3,000 kilometers wide. So let's take a quick look at the situation in the Soviet Union in September 1941. In the north, Leningrad is almost completely surrounded. The rail lines have virtually been cut. The Finns are reluctantly to the northwestern Karelia and also northeast of Lake Ladoga. They were supposed to make this sweeping action around the lake and link up with German forces coming up from the southwest, but that didn't really happen. Army Group Center, after the Battle of Smolensk, took a pause. Hitler ordered the Panzer Groups to pause, regroup, reinforce, and resupply, and then sent Panzer Group 3 under Hoth north and Panzer Group 2 under hurrying Heinz Guderian south to aid in the uh, taking of Kiev, which fell in mid-September after vicious fighting, which was costed both sides and led to a huge encirclement, as described last episode. And also, by this point, the Germans are starting to really feel the effects of their long supply lines, 150 to 200 kilometers long at the very least. They were feeling also the loss of a large proportion of their transport fleet, planes, as well as trucks. This was a huge problem because they were also realizing that they were consuming a lot more fuel than they anticipated because of poor roads difficult terrain, and, yes, the unanticipated stubborn resistance of the Red Army and the Soviet peoples in general. The sparse and poor state of the Soviet rail networks also didn't make that any easier. Resupply by rail was further complicated by the fact that the train gauge or the rail gauge in Russia was different from the rest of Europe. It was wider. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, who served in the Red Army, as I've said before, 
told a uh, somewhat scandalous joke that was common among the, uh, the people at the time, that uh, the reason that the Russian rail network gauge was wider than the rest of Europe was because the Tsar, upon seeing the first attempts at building a railroad, said the rail should be moved apart wider by the space of, and he used a particular Russian slang word that meant a bull's penis. So the rails were wider than the German rails by the length of a bull's penis. Anyway, back to the war. So that's what situation in the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa at the end of the summer. Let's situate that, though, in a larger context. In the Pacific, Japan invaded French Indochina in July 1941. President Roosevelt of the United States, in response, announced an oil embargo against, quote, aggressors, meaning Japan. On August 9th, Roosevelt and Churchill met in Newfoundland and signed the Atlantic Charter, outlining their aims for the world after the end of the war, presuming that they won. Daily air raids by the Luftwaffe continued all over the UK, even on Scotland. Malta became a major scene of operations. It was a crucial British naval and air base in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, crucial to the communication and supply of British Egypt and delivering critical supplies. As a result, Malta suffered daily multiple air raids from Italian Air Force. Shipping was attacked. Malta was also a critical submarine base for the British. And from there, the British submarines sank many Italian ships. In North Africa, the siege of Tobruk continued as the Austrian 9th Division, along with troops from other Commonwealth countries, held the port against harsh, consistent Axis attacks. In the Middle East, on July 12th, Vichy French forces in Lebanon surrendered to combined Commonwealth and Free French forces. This prevented a possible German move around the Mediterranean to threaten British Egypt from the north. And in conquered portions of Eastern Europe, Nazis, that is, certain Germans with like-minded people of other conquered countries, began massacring Jews in conquered territory. For example, the Ponari massacre began on July 2nd, less than two weeks after the launch of Operation Barbarossa, where Germans shot Soviet prisoners and began deporting and murdering Jewish people from Vilnius, now the capital of Lithuania. In Lviv, then called Polish Luau, the Germans massacred Polish writers and scientists. In early August, the so-called registration of Jews in Stanislaw or Stanislaviv led to their murder. In September, German U-boats fired on the destroyer USS Greer near Iceland even though at this point the U.S. was technically not a combatant, although it was supplying the U.K. The Greer incident prompted Roosevelt to proclaim a shoot-on-sight policy. He said, Nazi submarines, quote, very presence in any waters which America deems vital to its defense constitutes an attack. In the waters which we deem necessary for our defense, American naval vessels and American planes will no longer wait until Axis submarines lurking under the water or Axis raiders on the surface of the sea strike their deadly blow first. 
end quote. So this is a good point to start to look at the help the West started to deliver to the USSR, which began almost immediately after the attack on June 22nd. In fact, on the eve of the attack, June 21st, 1941, Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of the UK, told dinner guests that Germany's attack was coming and that Britain and the US should do everything they could to help the USSR surprising many who knew how much Churchill loathed communism. But he responded more or less that the enemy of your enemy is your friend, and that Hitler's Nazis were a much greater and more immediate threat. The next day, upon learning of the invasion, Churchill made a speech broadcast across Britain that the invasion of the USSR was a prelude to an invasion of the British Isles and the subjugation of the Western Hemisphere. Quote, the Russian danger is therefore our danger and the danger of the United States, end quote. This was his famous, we shall fight him by land, we shall fight him by sea, we shall fight him in the air until, with God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow and liberated its peoples from his yoke. Any man or state who fights against Nazism will have our aid, end quote. Roosevelt reacted to the invasion much the same way, if less eloquently. Quote, any defense against Hitlerism, any rallying of the forces opposing Hitlerism, from whatever source these may spring, will hasten the eventual downfall of the present German leaders and will therefore redound to the benefit of our own defense and security. End quote. Still, even though they supported the USSR's cause, there was a certain amount of trepidation among the both governments. For example, if the Germans did achieve their goals and reach Moscow in six weeks, that is, by August 15th, wouldn't any aid sent to the USR just fall into their hands and be used in Hitler's next step, the conquest of the West? What was left of it, that is? And let's not forget the communists' long-standing, in fact, formative ideology to oppose the West and capitalism, and the animosity and fear of most American and British people toward the communist USSR. Let's also not forget the German-Soviet pact that had been, at least on the surface, in effect for the past two years, and that the USSR had participated with Germany in dismembering Poland in 1939. The USSR had not said a word as German armies marched across France, Norway, Yugoslavia, Greece, or Libya. They had remained silent as a Luftwaffe bombed Britain. The USSR had not offered any help to the UK, even as it supported Hitler's Germany with food and raw materials right up to June 21st. Despite all that, Despite that communist propaganda had attacked Britain and the United States up to that day, Stalin wasted no time, not just in asking for, but demanding resources, material, and even that the West open a second front in Europe. At the end of June, Ivan Maisky, the USSR's ambassador to the UK, asked for a second front 
to force the Germans to divert some forces from Russia. The British flat out refused. There was no way that Britain could launch an invasion anywhere on the European continent that would not just be plain suicide in the summer of 1941. Even a year later, Dieppe showed how unready they were. Still, on July 12, 1941, the British and the Communist Soviets signed the Anglo-Soviet Pact. One of its clauses was a promise to render each other assistance and support of all kinds in the present war against Hitlerite Germany. The Royal Air Force increased the number of planes flying nightly missions over Germany from 200 to 250, and the Royal Navy sent a squadron of ships to the Arctic to cooperate with Soviet naval forces. At the end of July, Churchill informed Stalin that Britain would send resources like tin, lead, rubber, wool, and 300 American Tomahawk fighter planes, even though this diminished their own supplies. The Americans started sending supplies too in the summer of 1941. At first, it was a modest, even meager stream, $7 million worth in July, which increased up to nearly $30 million worth by October. While the supplies were slow to start, the commitment was real. By the end of the war, American and British supplies kept the Red Army going. My late father-in-law, Maurice Bray, mentioned him a minute ago, who fought in the Red Army during the war, told me just how desperately short the Red Army was in 1941. They lacked just about everything, food, clothing, ammunition. The first volume of the Eastern Front Trilogy is called Army of War and Souls because the men of the Red Army had to walk so far without resupply that their boots wore out. They had to wrap their feet with old newspapers. In 1941, Western help to the USSR included not just supplies, but also action. In August, British forces, with Soviet help from Azerbaijan, invaded Iran in order to protect the Abadan oil fields and open another supply line that was beyond German reach. This operation also involved deposing the current Shah of Iran in favor of his son, Reza Pahlavi. Yes, that Reza Pahlavi, who ruled until 1979 with a notorious interregnum in the 1950s. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army during the Second World War. He was a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. Drafted in the spring of 1941, Canadian-born Maurice Burry found himself facing Operation Barbarossa, the greatest land invasion in history. Unprepared for the assault, the Soviets retreated and were captured by the millions at a time. By the fall, Maurice and his men were starving in a POW camp. As the last of their strength ebbed, Maurice conspired to find an escape for himself and his men. 
After a nightmarish journey across Ukraine, he joined the underground resistance against the Nazi oppressors. He risked death time after time, but he also found ordinary people who risked their own safety to help him. Not only in standing against the Nazis, but an even more dangerous ambition to return home to Canada. It's a story that reads like fiction. It's not. It's the Eastern Front Trilogy. You can find more about the Eastern Front Trilogy at scottburyauthor.com slash books. You'll find the links in the show notes for this episode or on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. Back in the USSR. In August, Hitler ordered Army Group Center to take a summer pause, in the words of Alan Witt, after the Battle of Smolensk. According to Hitler's directives, this would allow the Panzer forces to reinforce, replenish, and also to liquidate the Smolensk pocket, that is to kill or imprison hundreds of thousands of Red Army troops in the Smolensk pocket. Field Marshal von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, reported taking 309,000 prisoners. And then, as described in Episode 5, Hitler ordered Panzer Group 3 north to help take Leningrad and Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group south to Ukraine. As I explained last episode, this was a fateful decision. According to some historians, it may have spelled the ultimate failure of Operation Barbarossa. So, in the north, units from Army Group Center arrived in Army Group North's area by late August. Field Marshal Wilhelm Ritter von Lieb, commander of Army Group North, prepared what he thought would be the final push to take Leningrad. The 39th Motorized Corps, formerly from Army Group Center, and the 1st and 28th Army Corps would attack from the southeast along the road to Moscow while the 4th Panzer Group, that's Lieb's original group, uh, pushed directly toward Leningrad along with the 18th Army from the south and the west. Uh, what was left of the German 16th Army defended their right flank along the Volkov River. You can see all these details on map 1 for this episode. The Volkov is the river to the right flowing into Lake Ladoga. According to David Glantz in Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's invasion of Russia in 1941, quote, Soviet defenses opposite the assembling German host were a shambles, end quote. The Leningrad Operational Group, a group of armies organized to defend closer to the city, was almost encircled in the south at Krasnodar-Vardysk, which you can see on the map, while other forces were weakened, chewed up, and strung along a line further east. Oops, sorry, my cat just jumped onto my shoulder. Coco, it's not supper time yet. Now, where was I? The Germans captured Schisselberg on the southern shore of Lake Ladoga on September 8th. As explained in Episode 5, the Soviet High Command, Stavka, thought this meant the final desperate assault on Leningrad itself was imminent. But the German High Command, OKW, figured that Army Group North had achieved its objective. In fact, Franz Halder, chief of the general staff of the German army, wrote in his diary on September 5th, quote, 
Leningrad. Our objective has been achieved. We'll now become a subsidiary theory of operations, end quote. So Hitler decided, instead of a direct assault on the city of Leningrad, urban warfare is notoriously costly in terms of casualties for attackers, he decided to besiege and starve Leningrad instead. I promise a full episode on the defense of Leningrad, but back to the front, as it were. The units from Army Group Center, as well as Hopner's 4th Panzer Group, then were ordered down to the central front, southward, for the resumed push on Moscow in Operation Typhoon. More on that later as well. Around Leningrad, though, the Germans cut off all rail communications. By mid-October, they had encircled the city. But by then, the snow had started to fall. Let's put a pin in that and skip south again to Ukraine. Because it's here that illustrates the limited utility of another of the myths about the Eastern Front, how it was only General Winter that stopped the Germans. Hitler's Fuhrer Directive 35 ordered the encirclement of Leningrad and the renewed surge toward Moscow, but it also ordered the capture of Crimea, Kiev, and Kharkiv. As we heard in Episode 5, Kiev fell on September 16th with a huge encirclement at Uman and another east of Kiev, trapping 452,000 troops. Colonel General Mikhail Kirponos, commander of the Southwestern Front, defending Kiev, and most of his senior officers were killed. Next, the OKH, the German High Command, ordered the Army Group South to launch simultaneous attacks toward Kharkiv, the Donbass, and Rostov-on-Don, near the mouth of the Don River, into the Sea of Azov. This would mean they took all of Ukraine. Two armies advanced on Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, and the heart of Ukraine's industry. In fact, all of the USSR's industry. After four days of fighting, the German 57th Infantry Division of the 6th Army, remember that one, had driven the 38th Red Army out by October 24th. However, by then, the Soviets had evacuated 70 major factories on more than 300 trains to points east, out of German reach. Two more German armies, plus the Romanian 3rd Army, set out from Dnepropolovetsk, now Dnipro, on the Dnipro the Dnipro River, to encircle the Soviet southern front. Then they would invade Crimea and also advance toward Rostov. This would require splitting forces again. Panzer Group 1, now renamed the 1st Panzer Army under Field Marshal Ewald von Kleist, smashed through the 12th Red Army from Poltava, the site of the decisive victory of Tsar Peter the Great over Sweden in 1709. From there, the Panzers encircled six divisions from the Red 9th and 18th Armies near Melitopol, near the Sea of Azov, on October 7th. Lieutenant General A.K. Smirnov was killed by artillery in the action. The Panzers continued racing past Mariupol onto Stalino and Tegorog, only 76 kilometers from Rostov, their ultimate goal for that operation. Odessa, far to the west of this action, had hung on since August. German and Romanian forces swept past them. But on September 30th, with Kiev gone, Leningrad surrounded, and encirclements at Vyazba in the center, more on that in the future, I promise, 
Stavka ordered the Odessa garrison to evacuate. On the night of October 14th to 15th, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet evacuated 350,000 soldiers and civilians to Sevastopol, the fleet's main base in the Crimean Peninsula. There, however, they soon faced German attack again as the German 11th Army and the Romanian 3rd Army invaded Crimea. I'll post a full bonus episode about the invasion of Crimea for supporters and subscribers. In northern Ukraine, the German 6th Army, under Field Marshal Walter von Reichenau, also set out from Poltava, smashing through the 6th and 38th Armies and pushing the defenders toward Oskol, the northern Donetsk and Mias rivers, by the end of October. But in the fall, the Germans came face to face with yet another foe they obviously hadn't anticipated. Mud. Yes, mud. Like in Flanders in the First World War, but far, far worse. Mud so thick, liquid, and deep that it stopped nearly all movement. It was called Rasputitsa, the season of mud, that happened twice every year in Russia and Ukraine, in the spring and fall. We can see the same effect now in 2022, in the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sorry, the special military operation. I'll quote from Russia Besieged, a book by Nicholas Bethel. Quote, The early October rains were the beginning of a downpour that lasted for days and turned the tracks into oozing quagmires and the fields into seas of jelly three feet or more deep. The mud sucked up guns and baggage, drew boots off the soldiers and halted vehicles. Trucks and wagons sank to their axles in it, horses to their bellies. Even in places where the tanks could roll and the med could march, the advances they made gained them little reward, for supplies of all kinds became mired in the rear. For want of fuel, the tanks stalled. For want of ammunition, the guns fell silent. For want of food, the troops went hungry. One infantry commander reported to Guderian on October 29th that his men had not received any bread since October 20th. End quote. David Glantz in Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia in 1941, wrote this about Rasputitsa. The arrival of the autumn Rasputitsa deprived the Germans of their dearest advantage, mobility, and brought Blitzkrieg to a standstill in the mud, where the Red Army troops could fight more equal battles with the bogged-down German tanks and infantry. End quote. This was more than a logistical challenge. It affected every German soldier immediately. I'll quote now from a book called Fighting in Hell, The German Ordeal on the Eastern Front, which is a compilation of letters and journals from Germans who were on the scene at the time, and then edited by Peter Tsouris and published in 1995. Large-scale operations are impossible during the muddy season. In the autumn of 1941, an entire German army was completely stopped by mud. The muddy season of that year began in mid-October, and was more severe than any other muddy season experienced in World War I or World War II. During the first stages, cart and dirt roads were impassable, and then the road from Oslavl to Oral became mud-choked. Pursuit of the enemy who had been beaten was impossible. Units became separated and intermingled, with only scattered elements in contact with the enemy. Motor vehicles broke down with clutch or motor trouble. Horses became exhausted and collapsed. 
Roads were littered with dead draft animals. Few tanks were serviceable. Truck and horse-drawn wagons bogged down and railroad supply was not equal to the situation. The attacker is at a disadvantage in mud and has to confine himself to local actions. The defender has time to organize his position well in advance of the muddy season. Defending infantry can fight from dry, well-concealed positions, while attacking infantry offers a prime target as it clumsily trudges through knee-deep mud. End quote. This is another thing that Maurice, my father-in-law, told me about. Mud prevented movement. Trucks and men sank into it. Even tanks were immobile, unless we were equipped with extra-wide tracks. The heaviest tanks, like the Soviet Stalin tank, just sank into the mire. I posted some photos on the website showing vehicles sunk into the mud, even horses, mired impossibly. And while some of the German officers dismissed the Rasputitsa as a, a week or two's delay, that was a delay that Germans could not afford. They were already way behind. Remember that their original objective was Moscow by August 15th? Here it is, two months later, and they're still 100 kilometers away. Eventually, the rains abated. The ground got firmer as the temperatures fell. And the temperatures fell more. The rain turned to snow. The temperature fell more. The ground froze, allowing tracked and then wheeled vehicles to move again. And the temperatures continued to fall, to plummet, to plunge below Germans' experience. As the cliché goes, general winter struck. Temperatures, especially around Leningrad, fell to minus 40 Fahrenheit, which is the same measurement in Celsius. Quote, Water froze in the boilers of railroad engines, oil froze in trucks, grease froze in guns, and the mechanized German army had to seek horses to hitch to its tanks. From Russia Besieged by Nicholas Behel. Continuing, quote, Wounded foot soldiers often died where they fell, not from their injuries, but from shock and frostbite. Many more froze to death inside hospital trains stalled in snowdrifts. Soldiers watched each other for signs of frostbite. Nevertheless, nearly 113,000 cases occurred. End quote. Incredibly, in attacking Russia, the Germans had not prepared for winter. They didn't have warm winter uniforms, nor boots, and their supplies were a thousand kilometers away. But again, I'm getting ahead of things. So to sum up the Leningrad front, the Germans have surrounded the second largest city in the USSR and starting in September, bomb it every day in an attempt to destroy it completely. In the center, the third and most of the fourth panzer groups are assembling to drive Smol from Smolensk toward Moscow. In addition, Guderian's second panzer group is moving north after the encirclement of Kiev uh, from Shostka, which is about 300 kilometers or 200 miles northeast of Kiev. The plan is to go through Orel in Russia toward Moscow. The 6th Army 
then drove the 38th away from Kharkiv in heavy combat between October 20th and 25th, and they also encircled more Red Army troops, including my father-in-law, Maurice Burry. Here's the scene from Army of Worn Souls. Maurice led his boys behind a stream of Red Army units down a forest path worn and widened by thousands of men. Most of the enlisted men were barefoot, their felt boots worn away. Even the officers' uniforms were tattered. Men, not horses, pushed or pulled wagons or dragged crates of ammunition behind them. After a half hour, the forest opened to a wide glade filled with Red Army. Men collapsed into the tall grass, dropping their weapons on the ground without bothering to stack them. No fires burned. There was no food to eat. Maurice led his unit to a clear spot near the edge of the forest. Stack your rifles, boys, he ordered. They stacked them in a circle and arranged the parts of the anti-tank guns behind them. Then they collapsed like the rest. Think we're safe here? Orest asked. Safe as anywhere from Fritz, Yuri said. Are we safe from the Russians? Another private, Slauka, said in a low voice that Maurice could barely hear. We could slip into the woods, hide until Fritz goes past us, then sneak back home. Maurice leaned into the circle of his men. If a commissar hears even a whisper about desertion, he said as loudly as he dared, he'll shoot all of us, without hesitation. Slalko's eyes dashed to every man in the unit before he slumped back onto the grass. Maurice let out a breath he hadn't realized he had been holding. Then he heard a rumble. He turned just in time to hear four men yell at once, Halt! All around the perimeter of the clearing, men wearing gray uniforms and holding submachine guns stepped out of the woods. They were captured. That image can take us to the next episode, when we will return to the center stage and Operation Typhoon, the Germans' renewed push toward Moscow. So, what have we seen so far in this episode? Well, what I'm trying to show is just how complex the Eastern Front was. And how complex the entire Second World War was. How events and decisions in Africa could affect operations in Russia. How politics in the Pacific have impacts on the ground in Iran. And in Russia, the success, even the perceived success, in the North near Leningrad, allowed the Germans to move across the whole of Ukraine in the south. So, next episode, we're going to see even more of this effect. But for now, I'll let you go. Listen to other podcasts, maybe. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and the photos on the new website, beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca, and click on the podcast button in the banner. Also, thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, more research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook 
Beyond Barbarossa page. Our original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>